0: Well, first of all, John, thank you for the honor of addressing this group. And I really didn't appreciate how much of an honor it was until I saw the speakers that came before me. And I have to tell you, I've appeared before circuits circuit courts of appeal and hostile federal judges all over the country. This is more intimidating. <laughs> and I thought, you know, to explain the tie and jacket, I could at least... Appear to be as natty as Professor Ayuso, <laughs> uh, but I have to say it's it's rather withering to see before my talk a succession of multilingual intellectuals. But I'll do what I can. You want me
1: to leave? Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't I don't come before you as uh, a mathematical physicist. Uh, such as Professor Berlinski. In fact, they say there are only three kinds of lawyers, those who are good with numbers, and those who aren't. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll, I'll be talking tonight about an aspect of the crisis of modernity with a focus on the ethical dimension of the overthrow of Christian social order. And, of course... I'm dealing with intellectual topics here. And this is an academic conference. But as I'll I'll point out at the end of the talk, the primacy of action in terms of a solution to the crisis is spiritual. Prayer, penance, and the liturgy. Let's not forget that. But of course, here we're we're here to discuss academic subjects. And that's what I'm going to present to you, although the spiritual is part of the solution that I'll be discussing at the end of the talk. But as I say, my focus is on the ethical dimension. Now, I appeared out in Oregon in a trial, maybe you've heard about it, called the Nuremberg Files website case. And this was a case involving pro-life activists who put out a couple of posters identifying abortionists by name and calling them what they were, which is basically the equivalent of Nazi criminals. And advocating the idea that someday, when civilization regains its senses, there might be Nuremberg-style trials for abortionists. And these posters, as I said, identify these abortionists by name, and the pro-life activists that I represented were sued under the Freedom of Access to Clinics Entrances Act and under the RICO statute, which was designed to deal with racketeers who corrupt organizations by infiltrating them. And they were put on trial, literally, as racketeers, and the plaintiffs were people who killed babies for a living. And they won a verdict, because the jury charge made it impossible to win the case. And I got the verdict reversed by a three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals, which basically said that the speech in question was protected by the First Amendment. But then in the Ninth Circuit, they have what's called an en banc panel, which is a larger panel of judges, 11 judges. And by a vote of 6 to 5, this politically motivated panel reinstated the verdict. And we've been up and down to the Supreme Court ever since, and the upshot of it is the verdict was ultimately reduced by about 96% instead of being totally reversed, as it was the first time around, and we're working on the other 4%. But the problem is these defenders of the good were put on trial as racketeers and convicted, and they were convicted because we live in a society whose institutions have been absolutely de ethicized and that's what I'm going to be talking about tonight, the how and the why of the de of Western civilization. And I'll start with something that Justice Scalia said. Actually, a few comments by Justice Scalia, from which I'll take my theme for this discussion. One of them was on 60 Minutes in April of 2008. And he was asked about the abortion question, which he called the abortion thing during this interview. And he said, and I quote, my job is to interpret the Constitution accurately. And indeed, there are anti-abortion people who think that the Constitution requires a state to prohibit abortion. They say that the Equal Protection Clause requires that you treat a helpless human being that's still in the womb the way you treat other human beings. I think that's wrong. I think that when the Constitution says that persons are entitled to equal protection of the law, I think it clearly means walking around persons. You don't count pregnant women twice. This is a Catholic jurist speaking. Earlier that month, in April 2008, Justice Scalia spoke to students at Roger Williams University in Rhode Island. And here is what he said. You want the right to abortion? Create it the way most rights are created in a democracy. Persuade your fellow citizens it's a good idea and pass a law. And then in March of 2008 at the University of Central Missouri, he said, if you want the right to an abortion, persuade your fellow citizens it's a good idea and pass a law. If you feel the other way, Repeal the law. Now, back in 1996, at, Gregorian, at the Gregorian in Rome, during a question-answer session, Justice Scalia was asked about the Nuremberg Laws in Germany, which racially targeted the Jews for their eventual rounding up and extermination. He was asked, surely, Justice Scalia, you don't think the majority had the right to pass the Nuremberg Laws against the Jews, and his answer was, and I quote, if you're going to be a faithful, loyal Democrat... If you do not like the Nuremberg laws, your duty is to persuade them. It is the duty of a Christian to act by persuading your fellow citizens. And he went on to say during that same Q&A session, and I quote, if the people, for example, want abortion, the state should permit abortion in a democracy. To say, ah, but that is contrary to the natural law, is simply to say that you set yourself above the democratic state and presume to decide what is good and bad in place of the majority of the people. I do not accept that as a proper function. And then he expounded his entire philosophy of the state with these words. The responsibility of government is the here, not the hereafter. I believe it is the job of the state to take care of the natural man. And it is up to religious individuals and associations to take care of the supernatural man. So with these words, Justice Scalia he evinces an absolute repudiation not only of the Catholic conception of the state and political ethics in particular, but even the Greek conception. He evinces a total rejection of the entire Western tradition on the state and political ethics. He denies specifically that the natural law written into our hearts has a place in politics. In fact, he says the soul itself is not a concern of politics. And as I say, that's a rejection of our entire tradition. Now, Socrates would hardly agree that a judge must follow the will of the majority no matter how immoral the outcome of the majority's decision. We know that in 406 B.C., during his one and only political appearance, Socrates found himself as the presiding judge of the Athenian assembly. And there was a clamoring for the mass execution of the Athenian admirals who, though they had won the Battle of Arjunase, had left some of the survivors behind them, the stormy seas, and they drowned. And you know, the Athenian state was singing hosannas over the victory, but the grieving families wanted justice. They wanted the mass execution of the admirals. Socrates refused to vote for it. There was no precedent for it. There was no moral standard that would justify collective guilt and a collective execution. Socrates believed that the positive laws governed by an absolute moral standard, a universal moral standard, which is justice. And for Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, politics is precisely what Scalia says it isn't. Politics is the care of the soul, according to a moral standard that is universal. The Socratics and Aristotle stood precisely for a politics of the soul, whereas modernity, as represented by Justice Scalia, stands for a politics of the body only. And liberalism can be summed up precisely as an abandonment of the politics of the soul that was founded some 2,400 years ago by Socrates, and his pupil Plato, and by Plato's pupil Aristotle. Now, Socratic thought represents the first appearance in Western history of the soul in the spiritual sense in which Christians understand it. And here I'm guided by a couple of things, but especially Werner Yeager's monumental work on the thought of Plato, *Pi Deia*, and I recommend everyone get a copy of that. Uh, Professor Rao has been recommending that book for years. It's, 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 a, it's essential to an understanding of what Plato was all about. Jaeger and others have shown that with Socratic thought, we see for the first time in Western civilization, the concept of the spiritual soul. And Socrates, writes Jaeger, came to save the soul. And he can be seen as the founder of theology in that respect. In fact, with Plato, the soul comes to be seen as immortal and subject to purification or condemnation in the life to come. Listen to this passage from the Phaedo. And when the dead arrive at the place to which the genius of each severally conveys them, first of all, they have sentence passed upon them, as they have lived well and piously or not. And those who appear to have lived neither well nor ill, he's speaking of a lukewarm, go to the river Acheron and mount such conveyances as they can get and are carried in them to the lake. And there they dwell and are purified of their evil deeds and suffer the penalty of the wrongs which they have done to others and are absolved and receive the rewards of their good deeds according to their deserts. But those who appear incurable by reason of the greatness of their crimes who have committed many and terrible deeds of sacrilege, murders foul and violent, or the likes are hurled into Tartarus, which is their inevitable destiny, and they never come out. And Plato even intimates that arête, excellence and virtue, is ultimately a gift of the gods. As Socrates says in Protagoras, I never thought that human ingenuity could make men good. And liberalism, as we'll see in the course of this discussion, is all about trying to make men good through human ingenuity, according to a standard of of the good that is utterly relativized. And Plato, speaking through his Socrates, gave us something new, also, in terms of values. And I'm speaking of a hierarchy of values, in which the spiritual is at the top. Immediately, we have bodily health, goods of the body, and at the bottom, external possessions. And the highest good among the spiritual goods is God. And this architectonic of the good, where you have the highest good, which is God, solves the so-called incommensurability problem, where someone might say, well, all of these goods are incommensurable. You can't really compare one to the other. But when you establish the concept of the highest good, man has an end toward which all of his inferior activities are directed so that the use of of bodily goods and the use of external possessions is oriented to the highest good, which is God. Also with Plato, we have this new conception of morality as man's conformity to the law of his soul, which is the very thing we see rejected in statements like those made by Justice Scalia. And without a soul, ethics is simply not possible because without a spiritual principle in man, Man is nothing but matter. If man is nothing but matter, he's subject to the laws which govern the movements of matter. He is incapable of a rational choice. He does what he must do according to physical laws. And so it makes no sense to speak of ethics. Man has no choice but to act as he does. And so man has a soul that has a spiritual element, as opposed to what St. Thomas talks about, the vegetative soul of plants, or the sensitive soul of the lower animals in addition to those elements we have a rational soul a soul that is capable of making choices and so it's meaningful to speak in the case of the human soul only of an ethics which involves choice and that ethics is governed by an absolute standard of goodness Plato speaks of the forms these abstract ideas which correspond to the various perfections and the form of the good is what we strive toward now in his system and in the Christian system, the nonconformity of the individual to morality is simply the individual's nonconformity to the real world, as Jaeger says. In our age, morality and reality are no longer the same thing, and that's the fundamental crisis of ethics in Western civilization. Morality no longer corresponds to what man is, to what the real world is, to the ordered cosmos with its hierarchy of goods. And and we all know that Plato says that happiness consists of a rightly ordered soul. Again, the emphasis on the soul. And the rightly ordered soul, governed by reason, possesses the cardinal virtues of prudence, temperance, courage, and justice. And the end of virtue, says Plato, says the whole tradition of the Western world, is to be like God. The striving that man undertakes in the realm of ethics is all about perfecting him so that he can become as much as is humanly possible like God now how does the state relate to this objective again remember what Justice Scalia said and what our tradition says the role of the state is to facilitate the perfection of the individual precisely in the activities of his soul the state is man writ large says Plato so that what is good for man is good for the state And consequently, there is no disjunction between private morality and public morality. But this doesn't mean that Plato is a statist. That's a superficial libertarian reading of of Plato's thought, especially in the Republic. Actually, Plato, as Jaeger says, puts the state on trial. He rejects the sophistic conception that might makes right and the sophistic conception that the function of the state is to enlarge itself and expand its power and he also rejects the sophistical idea that we have to take man and the state just as they are and work with with those things because that's reality. No, Plato says that what is necessary is a radical reform of the state and of the individual according to virtue. And all of this is aimed at solving what Jaeger calls the problem of the state. What is the just state? If we know what the just state is, we know what the good man is because the state is the very atmosphere in which the soul breathes, so that the good state produces good people, the bad state produces bad people. So the the question is, what is the just state? And Plato's ideal state is merely a model of the soul in which every part is rightly ordered according to the rule of reason. So his famous analogy is extended in his discussion of the different kinds of government. The well-ordered government... The ideal government is that ruled by the philosopher king. Reason rules over the commonwealth, and everything is ordered according to reason. And you fall into timocracy, which is a degeneration into a situation where pride takes over from reason. You get a warlike state. There is nobility in such a state, but it has lost the control of reason to the extent that (laughs) pridefulness and bellicosity overcome reason, and the state, like Sparta, becomes warlike. Then there's democracy, in which the state descends into confusion, with good ideas competing with bad ideas, as they do in the disordered soul. Uh, Socrates talks about the example of someone who is offering sacrifice one day, going to the gymnasium the next, he's a drunk on the next day, and the different things are charging around in this democratic soul, and there's no integral morality to it. And then finally, tyranny, when the will just tyrannizes the soul I'll do whatever I please. And it's the same in the tyrannical state. So Plato set forth a foundation for the entire politics of the West by this analogy between the well-ordered state and the well-ordered soul, by his reference to the form of the good. And Aristotle takes the forms, of course, and immanentizes them. He makes them the telos of our existence, the, the, the indwelling end of man toward which he tends naturally. But there's a fundamental problem with this, with this system which is the lack of a moral obligation, strictly speaking, and ought. With Plato, we have the form of the good, but the form does not issue commands. And with Aristotle, we have a God who is not an active moral agent. The telos, man's indwelling end, directs him toward a certain end, but it doesn't have the nature of a moral command. What we get from the system of... Platonic and Aristotelian metaphysics, their metaphysical account account of man is a prudential ought, but not a law, properly speaking, not a moral obligation in the strict sense of something we ought to do as a matter of law. But Christ, with his coming, solved both the problem of the state, what is the just state, and the problem of the lack of a moral ought. As Jaeger writes, neither the ancient city-state nor the national ideal of the 4th century But the universal fellowship of Christendom laid the foundations for the fulfillment of Plato's hope. And so, with revelation and with the infusion of the supernatural virtues to complete and crown the canon of the cardinal virtues, we have the fulfillment of what Plato was looking for. God, the lawgiver, reveals himself to man literally at first on stone tablets in the Old Testament. And then as the New Testament teaches us, what is written on the tablets is written in our hearts. And Christ comes to give us what J.B. Schneewind has called the love commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And with these commands, Christ confirms the link between nature and God's command. And he shows us that God commands us to follow the natural law and has made it part of our nature. Because it is good, he issues the commands not simply because he is omnipotent and can oblige us to follow his commands, but because what he commands is good in itself. And only this integration of law and nature saves us from a monster God who could decree tomorrow that murder is a good and we have a natural right to kill each other. Take abortion, for example. Suppose our conscience told us that abortion is murder. And yet, God has never told us that. We haven't received the Ten Commandments. The Catholic Church has not taught us that abortion is intrinsically evil and, in fact, constitutes murder. We have, we have no revelation on this point, just our conscience. How long would the stricture against abortion last? On the other hand, let's assume our conscience tells us nothing. We have dead consciences, universally. Men have never arrived at any kind of conscientious recognition of the moral truth that abortion is murder. But someone tells us, well, God has forbidden it, and that's enough for you. Well, then we have the voluntarist God. Abortion is wrong merely, simply, and only because God says so. Not because there's anything written into our nature that tells us it's wrong. Not because the command that it is wrong is written into our nature and therefore is good in itself. That's why it's part of our nature. So only this double aspect of the law that undergirds ethical obligations saves us from the problem of the voluntarist God on the one hand, or an, a law that is not part of nature on the other. And here it has to be said that as, as far as this voluntarist God is concerned, if, God, if morality depended simply on the command of God, and it was not also a reflection of something that is written into nature because it is good, it wouldn't probably, be speaking, be a law at all. It would simply be God's arbitrary dictate. How could you say it was a law if it didn't conform to any objective standard of goodness. And this is the the Christian solution to this problem of of voluntarism, which is reflected in the the teaching of St. Thomas who says both that the natural law is written in our hearts and that God has commanded what he has written there. So what all of this means is that morality proceeds first of all from a metaphysical account of human nature which tells us what man is before we proceed to what man ought to do. To know the good, to know what is the good for man, we have to know what man is. And what we know from our tradition is that he is first and foremost a creature possessed of a rational soul. Now, in the 16th century, Suarez answering the nominalism of William of Ockham reaffirms this so-called compromise explanation by by uh, insisting against Ockham that in the absence of a command, there's no law, properly speaking. The mere observation of a tendency within ourselves, a conscientious abhorrence for something, doesn't constitute a law. The knowledge that we've done wrong, says Suarez, in itself, does not constitute a law. There has to be a law promulgated as such for the violation of which it's just to impose a penalty. So the mere observation of a tendency or a stirring of conscience does not confer a legal obligation. And this Catholic view on the source of moral obligation supplies what was missing in the incomplete Greek conception. We find everything the Greeks were looking for, the living form of the good toward which all things are drawn, and the command that the good be pursued and evil avoided. And that's the natural law, truly and properly grounded, in the only thing that can make it a law, always, everywhere, and for everyone, the being and the will of a loving God. Now, what do we do when there's a dispute of what the natural law requires of us? The church supplies what is wanted. Christ founded a church to settle questions of the natural law. Because of the fall, our understanding of the natural law is imperfect. As St. Thomas explains, we, we need to be taught on particular applications of the natural law. And the magisterium provides our infallible guide. And how does that work uh, in combination with the Greek conception of the state? Well, the end of the state is to promote virtue and the highest good, which is God. So in Christendom, the Church performs the function of instructing the state, of being the preceptor of the state on both the natural law and the divine positive law, and assists the state in leading man to the highest good, which for him is eternal beatitude. And that's the way it was for about 1,500 years. What we seem to have lost sight of, what many of us have lost sight of, is that Christendom was the norm for 15 centuries. And then came Luther. Now, Luther didn't attack the idea of a Christian commonwealth directly, but he, of course, started the process of theological confusion, which led to philosophical confusion, and then to ethical confusion. And the first signal of that, the forerunner of of our of our current problems in ethics, would have to be, Machiavelli's The Prince, published in 1532, five years after his death, and 15 years after Luther posted his 95 Theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And and Machiavelli speaks of this communitarian idea of the good, which is that we all exist to promote uh, the growth in power and the flourishing, material flourishing of the state. And he speaks of virtu, which is a virtually untranslatable term. But it basically refers to the consummately skillful politician, who uses everything, good, evil, instrumentalized religion, to achieve his aim of advancing the power of the state. And so Machiavelli reveals himself as the first great philosophical enemy of Christendom that we have to contend with. And this was at the the beginning of a long epic, when revealed religion was thrown into doubt, and of course, Christendom divided into warring sects. There were various fanaticisms, the king is executed, the king is deposed, and there's religious and moral chaos. And then we arrive at another key figure, a transitional figure, Hugo Grotius, in 1625. And I'm referring to his treatise on the law of war and peace, in which he utters his famous pray, phrase, Etiam si doremus," even if we should concede that God does not exist, would it still not be possible to have a natural law? Now, he didn't accept the thesis that you could, but he broached the possibility. He opened the door a crack to the idea that you could have an ethical order without a divine law giver. And he was the first to speak of a, a rational Christianity, a reductionist Christianity. We simply believe in what we can all agree upon, that there's a God, he created the universe, and he's sort of providential. Well, we don't have to worry about such things as the Trinity, the fall, or the redemption. And we begin to see the flourishing of this idea that we take man as he is. We don't worry about the fall. This is the man that we have to deal with, fallen man, whatever. We need an ethic that works with the real world, the world of fallen man. And grace drops out of the picture. The regenerative power of grace and the socially constitutive action of the Catholic Church is removed from the scene. And we see also with Brodius a shift from the idea of moral rules as connected to virtue to the idea of moral rules as securing justice. And what does justice mean? Well, With him, we see the idea that justice is really simply not taking what belongs to someone else. I'm entitled to my stuff, you're entitled to your stuff. Theft and murder are inadmissible. And that's what justice is. To each his own. And with this, we have a shift toward the idea of rights as opposed to duties. We see here the beginning of a process by which uh, duties are superseded by rights. And the funny thing about rights is that they're yours. They belong to you. So you can keep them if you wish. You can contract them away. You can do whatever you wish with rights. And even God has to respect your rights, because after all, they're yours. God gave them to you. Now, of course, when God revealed his law to us, he did not give us a bill of rights. He did not say in the first commandment, thou shalt have the right to religious liberty. (laughs) He did not say, thou shalt have the right to personal property. He told us we shall worship him. We shall not have false gods before him. We shall not steal. He imposed upon us a list of duties, not rights. Certainly the correlative of our obligation, of our honoring of duty, is we're recognizing the right of another to receive the results of our compliance with duty. But God does not speak of rights. He speaks of duties. Then we come to another critical stopping point on the de-ethicization of Western society. And that would be Descartes' Discourse on Method in 1637. We're looking at the sea of confusion around him. he says, well, everything is, is uncertain now. We don't know what, what Revelation really tells us. Uh, all this confusion. So I will retreat inwardly and ask myself, what are the clear ideas in my head? What is it that I know for sure? And that's where we get his famous cogito, I think, therefore I am. But as the Jesuits at Fordham used to tell us, the proper formulation of that within the Thomistic perspective is, I am, therefore I think. He reversed the process by, by ignoring being and focusing on intellection as a way to arrive at the truth. So th- this begins the process of immanentism from the Latin to remain within. when we go inside the mental realm, instead of looking at what's out there, the form of the good or the end of man uh, as established in nature. And through intellection, we try to figure out what is true and what is false. And 14 years later, Thomas Hobbes arrives on the scene. And this is the thinker who, for the first time, clearly substitutes the idea of rights for duties in political philosophy. And who, in addition to a lot of other things, destroys the entire concept of a free will that makes man morally accountable, both because there's a natural law written on his heart and because God has commanded it. Hobbes tried to give us a science of morality. He reduces human nature, which he actually denies, uh, to basically, in this Newtonian atmosphere in which he wrote, uh, a pile of molecules that moves according to the laws of nature. And so he deduced what he thought were physical laws of morality uh, based on his principle of self-preservation. And the human organism experiences this urge to preserve itself and feels pleasure and feels aversion. What we want is good, and we move toward that. What we are averse to is bad, and we move away from that. We move toward the good and away from evil like machines. Man is a pleasure bot, and that is man's natural law. And of course, when you reduce man to a moving assemblage of particles, you eliminate free will. And when you eliminate free will, you eliminate ethics. And for Hobbes, there was really no world of the spirit. He denied the world of the spirit entirely. He thought God was a material being. And then came Locke, who, in a more subtle way, arrived at essentially the same conclusions as Hobbes. And In his history of the Enlightenment, Peter Gay calls Locke the Moses who laid down the law for the new world of liberty and then died before he got to the Promised Land. (laughs) And and the Promised Land is modern political society and Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment liberalism. And in his works, his two treatises on government, his essay concerning human understanding, which has done more to obscure human understanding than any document ever written, His essay on toleration, his letter concerning toleration, his some thoughts concerning education, Locke essentially dismantled the entire Western tradition. And of course, he continued this process of of immanentism, this retreat within, where man constructs uh, a virtual polity, a virtual subject, all with modes of thought. And without any need for a metaphysical account, of man according to which his nature dictates his behavior. For Locke, there's no law written on our heart. He explicitly denied that God has written the natural law onto our hearts. Morality is based not in our nature, but is secured solely by the divine command. Locke keeps God around as a supernal police officer who's up in the sky with his nightstick waiting to punish us in the life to come. But God has not written his law into our hearts. And this voluntarist God, as uh, John Rist says, is a metaphysic substitute. We don't really need to know what man is. We don't really know, need to know whether he has a nature, whether he is a substance, a unity of body and soul, with the law written into the soul. It's enough that we have this voluntarist God to keep things in order, and that's our metaphysic substitute. And Locke's laws of nature, so-called, are really just variations on Hobbes' right to self-preservation. And his natural law, as is the case with Hobbes, is stated in terms of rights, the right to self-preservation and the right to property are chief among them. But then how do we know right and wrong? Where do we get our ethics in Locke's system? Because God is not speaking to us on a daily basis, according to Locke. Christ came. He gave us some helpful information. He left. There's no church to teach us on a continuous basis. There's no infallible magisterium. Well, we get from Locke the same system as Hobbes the pleasure-pain calculus. And this is what he says on the subject. An understanding free agent naturally follows that which causes pleasure to it and flies from that which causes pain, i.e., naturally seeks happiness and shuns misery. That, then, which causes anyone pleasure, that is good to him, and that which causes him pain is bad to him. For good and bad being relative terms do not denote anything in the nature of the thing, but only in the relation it bears to another, in the aptness and tendency to produce in it pleasure or pain. It is from this tendency to produce to us pleasure or pain that moral good or evil has its name. So like Hobbes, Locke has us connecting ideas, simple modes together into uh, causal chains. Well, this causes me pain. That's bad. This causes me pleasure. That's good. And Locke plugs into his pain and pleasure schema what he calls the five great pleasures health, reputation, knowledge, doing good, and get this the expectation of eternal and incomprehensible happiness in another world. Now Pierre Menent pointed out that with this fifth great pleasure, Locke undermines undermines his entire analysis of human motivation. Because why would anyone forego pleasure, and pain in this life for an incomprehensible happiness in another world. So we find a lot smuggling in human substance under the guise of this pleasure-pain schema. But it really doesn't fit at all. There's no no calculation by which I would forego the pleasure of the day for some incomprehensible happiness in another world, which is giving me no pleasure at the moment. And this is what uh, someone else called undercover Christianity. They, they, they want the Christianity, but they don't want it. And like Hobbes, Locke essentially denies free will, but much more skillfully than Hobbes does. Here's what he says. The greatest present uneasiness is the spur to action that is constantly most felt, and for the most part determines the will in its choice of the next action. So according to Locke, the wellspring of human action, even ethics, the action in the realm of ethics is uneasiness but of course charity cannot be reduced to uneasiness love cannot be reduced to uneasiness and what Locke is doing here is pretending to affirm free will the term to be applied here is compatibilism according to Locke we have a free will our free will is compatible with these pleasure and pain stimuli we're free to act on these stimuli so in that sense there's no constraint on us and acting in response to these stimuli, which largely determine our will. But animals have that kind of free will. There's no constraint on them when they respond to the stimuli of pleasure and pain. So he effectively undermines, if not directly denying, free will. It's Hobbesian determinism by another name, although a milder, kinder, gentler form, masked, as always, with Locke's studied ambiguities. So according to Locke, we have no law written on our hearts. The existence of the soul is cast into doubt. God's law is external to us. There is no living word incarnate who teaches us through his church. And Locke is iffy on the divinity of Christ, iffy on the Trinity. Indeed, he's iffy on revealed truth as a whole. Revelation, he says in his essay concerning human understanding, is subject to reason instead of the other way around. The ultimate verifier of a revealed truth is whether it seems reasonable to us. There's no church to tell us that we ought to rely on this or that truth as being revealed by God. There's no infallible teaching authority at all. In fact, God doesn't speak to us any longer. He spoke his peace with Christ. And that's written down in scriptures which we interpret for ourselves. Now, what happens to ethics when the divine ought is no longer seen as being written on our hearts and becomes a mere penalty to be applied in the life hereafter by the supernal cop on the beat, God? Ethics collapses. What happens to natural law? With Locke, As Schneewin says, natural law collapses with him. Because we have a natural law that isn't written in our hearts. We have a natural law that isn't part of nature. And what we have subsequent to Locke is all kinds of ethical schools that try to create an ethic without a divine lawgiver who both commands what we ought to do and inscribes that law in our hearts. We have intuitionism. Well, we just feel that this is right or wrong. We have intellectualism. Well, we just know if this is right or wrong. And we have rationalism. Well, okay, we don't know, but we just agree on it. We'll work something out. And finally, at the end of this process, we, we have Kant saying, well, man just legislates for himself the natural law by acting according to the categorical imperative in such a way that you would be content to have that be the universally applied law, which is what he argues... Uh, in his works. And we see in his critique of pure reason and his critique of practical reason what I mentioned earlier this undercover Christianity. Because Kant realized there was a problem here. If God is in the, uh, the noumenal realm and we don't really know him, uh, and we're, we're legislating for ourselves, uh, there really is no law. Because the law that we give to ourselves is no law at all. And, and yet, as Schneewin says, Kant invented this whole idea of morality as autonomy. And recognizing the problem with this, Kant brings God back into the picture, much in the way that Locke does. He says in his critique of practical reason, it is morally necessary to assume the existence of God, the same God that we can't make any affirmations about. And he says in the next paragraph of the critique of practical reason, there cannot be a duty to suppose the existence of anything, since this concerns only the theoretical employment of reason. Now, Pierre Manette picks up on this and says, and I quote, Kant affirms here that it is a duty for us to believe in the existence of a thing whose existence we are forbidden to affirm. He enjoins upon us a duty to be very strictly dishonest. And this is what we mean by undercover Christianity. He's giving us what Locke gave us, which is to say, an ethics without a living God writes his law on our hearts and helps us to understand and live by the law according to the teaching of his church and then finally in my <laughs> mad dash through the history of ethics we arrived at, at at Nietzsche who's laughing at this whole mess. Nietzsche says look what you're really saying is it comes down to an exercise of the human will God is really not in the picture as he says in his book gays the gay science in 1882 God is dead. And if it's really a question of the will, why should I wait for the exercise of my will upon the collective decision of other wills? Why should I wait for what the majority says, as Scalia seems to think we have to do? Why should the individual will wait for what other wills think on the subject? And as Menen says, we get caught in this vicious cycle of representation that Nietzsche makes fun of. The representative points to the people, the will of the people. And the people point to their representative. And no one wants to take credit for the, the exercise of the naked human will, but that's what's involved here. That's what Scalia is defending, the exercise of the naked human will, ungoverned by any absolute moral standard. So Nietzsche says, forget it. Forget representative government. Forget ethics. Stop flirting with any kind of ethical construct containing incoherent bits and pieces of the Christian tradition mingled with rationalism and hedonism. Let's be done with the whole thing. Let us move beyond good and evil into the realm of the will to power, the force majeure. And that's when the world will become a better place, when the strongest wills do what they will. And here's what he says in Beyond Good and Evil. From now henceforward, there will be such favorable conditions for greater ruling powers as have never yet been found on earth. A higher species of men who, thanks to their preponderance of will, knowledge, riches, and influence, will avail themselves of democratic Europe as the most subtle, suitable and supple instrument they can have for taking the fate of the earth into their own hands and working as artists upon man himself. That's where all of this has left us. And I'll stop because the tape has to be turned off. Is that one hour? No, no, no. to five minutes. Okay. Okay? Okay. All right, so I I finished my mad dash through the collapse of ethics and the de-ethicization of Western society, and now I get to the part where I ask the question, where do we go from here? Well, first of all, we have to abandon completely this project that we see in Catholic circles of trying to reach an ethical consensus (coughs) with those who will not found ethics on the existence of a knowable personal and loving God who judges and grants grace. That means, in particular, we have to reject such Catholic projects as the new natural law theory enunciated by Germain Grise and John Finnis, who think they can defend the natural law without invoking God, who think they can demonstrate, basically, the existence of law without a lawgiver. They think they have the answer. But here they are. They're they're implicitly dividing man from his soul just as Locke did. And just as Scalia does. Because they're saying that we have to keep faith out of the discussion. We have to keep debates over the nature of man out of the discussion. Is he an immortal soul or is he not? We have to keep religion out of the discussion. And we have to discuss a rationally derived ethics. Which comes from nothing but an exercise in practical reason. And according to Finnis, our practical reason can discover what he calls the seven basic goods. Life, knowledge, play, beauty, friendship, practical reasonableness, and religion. They've been phrased variously, but that's one formulation of them. And he says these should be self-evident to us in the exercise of our practical reason. But they weren't so self-evident that he was able to overlook something. Because after, in subsequent work, following 1993, he discovered an eighth basic good, marriage. He had forgotten that one. And Finnis and Grise, working with him, deny that there's a hierarchy in these goods. They claim these goods are incommensurable. Well, how can we really compare marriage to religion? How can we compare beauty to friendship? They're all good. So we should always act in conformity with all of these goods. But the problem with that is if you destroy the architectonic of the good, if there isn't one good at the top, which is eternal beatitude, then when you're pursuing the other goods, play and beauty and friendship, and you're not doing it with respect to the highest good, and your actions aren't ordered to the highest good, you're not following God's will. And we're right back to to where we started from, the deconstruction of natural law by the elimination of the God whose will is law, and who has also written the law onto our hearts. And so how do we know, according to to Finnis and and Grisey, which choices to make? Well, they say the love commandments that I mentioned earlier, those are fine within a religious perspective. Well, we can't go into the public square and engage with our secularist counterparts talking about the love commandments. Well, there they go dividing man again into his public part and his private part. They say we, we can't use these commandments of God as part of our discussion with our secularist brethren, if you want to call them that. Uh, we, ha- we have to find another principle. So Finnis enunciates this first principle of morality. And I quote, Involuntarily acting for human goods and avoiding what is opposed to them, one ought to choose and otherwise will those and only those possibilities whose willing is compatible with a will toward integral human fulfillment. Now, the first problem we have here is any first principle of morality that has that many words in it has to be wrong. The second problem is what does it mean? How does one determine integral human fulfillment if we're not going to begin with a metaphysical account of man? How do we know what the good for man is, what his integral human fulfillment is, if we don't know what man is? They've got it backwards. It's another form of immanentism. They're using intellection to arrive at moral principles without looking into the world of being to see man as he really is. And then from there you, you find out what the good for man is. Not for them. But their method of proceeding is what they call modes of responsibility. These are the specific ways of acting that lead to integral human fulfillment. And as I say, it's a new—it's a new form of immanentism. Immanentism, we're, we're, we're engaging in this, this Lockean project of stringing modes together, simple modes into complex modes, and arriving at an entire ethical system. In here, uh, it, it doesn't work. But even if it—if it could work, the question that com- confronted Plato and Aristotle would still present itself. Why should we? even if we find these eight goods according to the first moral principle and the modes of responsibility even if we find ways to act according to this enormous mental apparatus that they want us to that Finnis wants us to carry around for moral calculation even if we could perform this exercise why ought we to do it where is the moral obligation strictly speaking where is the law of god where is the binding divinely imposed legal obligation that corresponds to something inscribed in our nature? Where is there law at all in this system? Now, some might say this is a noble project because, after all, civilization is in crisis. We have to find common ground uh, with with those who disagree with us. Uh, But it isn't a noble project. It's subversive of everything we believe because what it presumes as a condition for, for discussion within this framework is that what Christ has revealed personally and through the teaching of his church is dispensable when it comes to the moral life. We needn't bring that into the discussion of how one leads a moral life. And if revelation is dispensable for the moral life, then revelation drops out of the picture, faith drops out of the picture, and revelation and faith are undermined. Christ did not come to give us dispensable counsels. He came to, to give us what we need to follow the natural law in our fallen condition, without which, and this includes the sacraments, we can't follow the natural law. And what our project like this says is we can follow the natural law if we just arrive at a proper understanding within an adequate uh, exercise framework erected according to an exercise of practical reason. There's no longer any fall from grace. There's no longer any need for grace. There's no longer any need for faith. There's no longer any need for the church. So this is a seemingly noble project is actually completely and utterly subversive of the Catholic position. That's the first thing you have to do is abandon projects like this. What is the second thing? We have to stop the rights talk. The shift to, from duty to rights has been disastrous for us. And more and more is this coming to be recognized within Catholic circles. By such scholars as Tracy Rowland and Alistair McIntyre, Tracy Rowland recently did an essay on the subject, and she was discussing Ernest Fortin's critique of this whole idea of rights as opposed to duty. And, and here's what Rowland says: Natural rights, as formulated by Locke and Hobbes, are not the instruments of an ignoble or superstitious right, but elements of a political theory which were specifically designed to substitute new myths for Christian culture, or rather Christian doctrine, including the substitution of the belief in the original peace of the Garden of Eden with the notion of the original violence of the state of nature. Fortin stated emphatically that the Bible had never heard of rites in the Lockean sense, and that when eus is used some 30 times throughout scriptures, it is always to designate some legally sanctioned arrangement such as a rite of burial after Abraham's purchase of a tomb for Sarah. He also noted that while Eura occurs a total of 54 times in the works of St. Thomas, it is, and this is an internal quote, never in the sense of referring to natural rights, but rather to canonical or civil rights, or to the ancient as distinguished from the new codes of law, or to the laws governing warfare and the like. And what what scholars like these are coming to see, is that rights, the concept of rights as opposed to duties, is actually a tool by which we have been subjugated to the power of the state. Father James Shaw has commented on this. And I'll quote, human rights are presented as a kind of common principle of agreement among the religious, ideological, and political philosophies. They are, however, closer to defining the battleground in which the question whether man will remain what he is created to be will be resolved. The so-called Judeo-Christian tradition, with its realistic basis in misery in the cross, is the only tradition that allows us to keep man as he is out of the hands of ideologues who promise a kind of utopia set up precisely against man's finite limits the limits that make him a being with rights. Let me engage in a little digression about how this works. The right to religious liberty. The absolute toleration of religious creeds within the state. And what is the result of the application of this right? Now, again, we've replaced a duty with a right. The duty imposed upon us by God is to worship him and him only in the manner he decrees. The right to religious liberty is the worship the the right to worship God in any way we please. And when you institutionalize that right, you get the multiplication of sex. You get the toleration of truth and error without limitation. You get the division of Christendom into, last count, 300 parts, which are internally inconsistent with each other. And that's why, as Peter Gay says, absolute religious toleration, and absolute state power are the improbable twins of liberal thought. They go together. Now to return to my theme, we have to reject the rights talk. And as John Riss says, recognize that, and I quote, moral obligation, the only obligation clearly separable from prudence or enlightened self-interest remains a utopian dream in a non-theistic universe. And vain are the attempts of theists to deny this in the hope of persuading secular moralists that the debate between them can be resolved in purely this worldly terms, end quote. The fundamental ethical problem in the modern world is that, to borrow the title of Cornelio Fabro's masterwork, God is in exile. And as Fabro says, the only thing that can save us from the collapse of ethics and the descent into outright atheism is a God who is recognized, and I'm quoting, not only as absolute, but as creator. Not only as creator, but as spirit. Not only as spirit, but as free. Not only as free, but as personal and providential. But there is no other way to avoid toppling him either into the world or into man to the fatal ruin of all three. That God, the real and living God, is not a mere handy notion that we keep in the background as a prop for morality, as Locke does, as Kant does, but being itself, the word made flesh who dwelt among us, the reality to which we must conform ourselves according to the traditional Greco-Catholic understanding of morality, our conformity to the real world. And now we find ourselves, after 250 years, the beneficiaries of liberal solutions to liberal diseases. When dogma was thrown into confusion, the liberal solution was to retreat from dogma into a new dogma, the dogma of toleration. When philosophical certitude was undermined by Protestant thinking, there was retreat into, into introspection, into imminentism, which left us with a new certainty, the skeptical assertion that it is absolutely impossible to know the truth with absolute certitude. In itself, of course, is an absolute assertion. When sovereignty was was thrown into doubt, the liberal solution was revolution, which left us with Locke's one supreme sovereign ruling over one-body politic, the sovereign from which we can no longer escape unless we're willing to be killed. When morality was thrown into confusion, the liberal solution was rational ethics, in which we try to agree on what is moral. And the result of that was a new moral principle. Thou shalt not impose your morality upon others. And so we still have dogma, we still have certitude, we still have sovereignty, we still have morality. But well, we have all of these things within the same categories, but with contents that are radically different. And now, now we face what uh, James Courtney Murray, of all people, critiques as the monism of power of the modern state. There's nothing left in the modern state in terms of authority, but the monism of power of secular government. Religion can no longer challenge it. The third and last practical approach to this whole problem, uh, I I, I will pick up from where Professor Ayuso left off in his his brilliant talk. And what what he said is something we have to remember and never forget. We have to preserve the whole of the Christian ideal because, as he says, so if we don't keep always before us the ideal of Christendom. Even the parts of Christendom that we attempt to preserve, the parts of this shattered edifice, will become corrupted and will lose everything, even the fragments. We have to keep before us the integral whole. And so in the search for real ethics, the West must collectively go out into the realm of being and find its way back to the true and living God in the only way that civilization can do that. Through Christendom. And that means, first of all, spiritual measures. People like Monk Seraphim, for example, or all of the priests here, can, by their prayers, do more than 100 million conferences of this sort. We have to have conferences like these in order to understand what the problems are, to educate each other about the conceptual defects, the fatal ones that have produced the crisis in ethics. But the solution is ultimately spiritual. And a kind of practical spiritual imperative in addition to praying, is the political activation of Catholic majorities. People who say it's impractical to return to Christendom forget that the preponderance of the population of the Western world is Catholic. If only 15 or 20 percent of that vast preponderance of Catholics could be reactivated politically, democracy could be turned against itself and the face of the Western world could be transformed. You don't believe me? Consider the example of Nicaragua, where Daniel Ortega, a communist, returned to the Church and led the drive for the total abolition of legalized abortion in Nicaragua. it can happen there, it can happen in any country where there are sufficient numbers of Catholics to affect the political process. And if Catholics were led by the pope and by the bishops, who are by and large feckless at this point, but but could become militant leaders of a new crusade, there's no telling what we could do. The power of the Church is absolutely illimitable if it can be unleashed in social action. But how do we do that? How do we do that? Do we just stay in our homes and pray? Well, of course we have to do that. But what is the single most powerful way in which we can affect this activation of Catholics and a social transformation as a result? Cardinal Ratzinger has told us, in Salt and Light and elsewhere, he has said that the good society requires good liturgy. This seems like a surprising statement, but it really isn't. Because the liturgy has the power to convert souls and to transform the face of the earth. In her brilliant but utterly obscure book, After Writing, Catherine Pickstock develops this theme. The subtitle of her book is The Liturgical Consummation of Philosophy. And the title, After Writing, gives an indication of the problem that confronts us, that men, by their writings, have subverted Christendom. From Luther's theses to Hobbes' Leviathan, to Locke's treatises, they create what she calls uh, the written subject and the written polity that can be manipulated any way you want, whereas Socrates never wrote a word or didn't write treatises. And orality, the use of writing, has undermined transcendental truths. And we live, as Pickstock says, in, the, in, an, in an un-liturgical world. The problem with Western civilization today is that it's un And as a result, it has become a polity of death, as she says. And in this polity, what we see is, and I'm quoting her, a contractualized construction. That's Locke's social contract, Hobbes' social contract. A contractualized construction of subjectivity, which is substituted for genuine civic life grounded upon public liturgical acts of citizenship. Now, her practical approach is all wrong. In fact, Pickstock is a liberal. She's even in favor of women's ordination. And her project is rather Nietzschean. They want to create their own liturgical polity and their own radical orthodoxy. But her diagnosis is spot on. When we look back over the history of Western civilization, it was the liturgy that provided the foundation for the faith of the people and, thus, for their adherence to ethics and for the entire life of the Christian. Now, of course, there should be an intellectual project. And and Dr. Rao has done brilliant work. I think he's a leader in, in, in holding up to the world the fraudulence of modernity and showing us the way back toward the truths that make up Christendom. But above all, there has to be a liturgical project. And ask yourselves, why is the world so afraid of the motu proprio? Why are the organs of world opinion jangling with loud alarums over well, this idea that the Latin Mass could make a comeback? Because they know instinctively, as Pickstock points out, that liturgy can and will change the world, and that the traditional Mass, by making converts, by restoring man's right relation to God, will change souls and thereby change the world. The world is afraid of the most because it knows that the liturgy is the way back to the realm of being as opposed to the eminentist realm of contractual ethics. It's the way back to real ethics and real civilization, back to Christian civilization rather than the culture of death. The liturgy has converted the world before and it will convert the world again. But as John Milbank has observed, only a global liturgical polity can save us now from literal violence. We need to put the Western world back into right order. We will do that through prayer, through liturgical restoration, and through conversions. Meanwhile, however, as Alistair McIntyre says, we are waiting not for Godot, but for a new and doubtless, very different St. Benedict. Thank you.
2: new natural law movement. I was thinking, it reminded me a lot of one of the earlier uh, forms of ecumenism in the early 20th century, which was not so much the the form we have now, let's all become one world religion, but let's all cooperate together. Um, As you said, other religions that believe similar natural ideas to to ourselves. And the phrase that still survives today is let's all get together as people of good will and try to solve some of I want to see what you think if that is, is fraudulent and doomed to failure for the very reason that bona and goodwill, as you explained, means a will oriented to the good and that anyone in a false religion, be it a religion that worships a false god or a religion that appears to know the true god but rejects his church, can't have a good will because their will can't be oriented to the good. Because you can say we can't Perceive and really understand the good without the guide of the church, and so without the church, there really is no cooperation on serious issues in the natural law. Possible. Obviously, we can get together and agree on whether we should put the town hall on this street or that street with people that are, are not of the church. But when it comes to issues like abortion, that it is really fundamentally may have some limited success, but it's fundamentally impossible to come and find common ground and work together on these issues because you're eventually going to get the point where the, the will will not be oriented
0: to the good and they lack the church to reorient it. well I, you know, I don't I think the, the instruction of the Holy Office in 1949 if I'm not mistaken allows the possibility of a targeted cooperation with uh, non-Catholic Christians who recognize the natural law and, and as far as questions such as abortion you could engage in demonstrations or rallies. But this idea of a, of a vast project of devising a common system of ethics I think is doomed to failure. But I know Protestants who are more tuned to the natural law than few Catholics. And when I tried that case out in Oregon, my clients were by and large Protestants. One of them has 13 children. He's all in favor of the social kingship of Christ. Of course, the problem with him is when it comes to a disagreement over the natural law, where do we go? But at least he, he recognizes that there is a natural law, properly speaking, which is written on our hearts and promulgated as law by God. So with people like that, you can work on, on particular projects. But I agree with you that this idea that we're going to have a civilization of love and, and, you know, and a common ethical framework that will be permanently erected is a non-starter. Chief, um, On your
3: comments about Finnis fitness, um, I agree that this, this you know, basic human goods thing that the Lord into, I don't think it's workable but I'm wondering whether you would quite doing justice to look like Greece we're talking about that, that for, for this theory Christ's law is, is dispensable it sort of just becomes irrelevant I don't know if that's quite true I mean, after all Greece says big multi-volume workers more precisely the way of the Lord Jesus and it's full of to... it's full of scripture quotes from start to finish I mean he's He's constantly appealing to the gospel and revelation to back up the various civic points he makes. Maybe what you're getting at is that, and I I suppose that that this is sort of, this is workable in the private sphere, but uh, in the public sphere you have to sort
0: of, oh, there's lots of things. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Father. Just to clarify, there's no question he appeals to Christ as a Catholic. But his his project with non-Catholics would not involve bringing them to an acceptance of Christ as the Word incarnate. That would be that would be his his take on on uh, a foundation for morality. But, but in the very process of saying, well, we have to leave that aside, even though it's certainly true, uh, and, and and we must accept it as true within our Catholic framework. We, we nonetheless have to leave it aside in order to go out and meet these secularists and find common ground with them. It, 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 it's really, in the end, absurd. Risk makes the point. That yeah. It's ridiculous to go up to an atheist and say, well, there are eight goods and one of them is religion. He'll laugh in your face. Yeah. You know, he has to be converted first before he
2: recognizes
3: that. But the, in this convert, I know you're um, talking about you know, goodwill and whether, this sort of naive assumption that all these unbelievers and people of any and other, they're all goodwill. Right. Grease takes that so far. And I've face-to-face discussion about this he thinks it's actually wrong to preach the gospel to Muslims. why? because um, they've been taught from uh, <clears throat> childhood up not to even listen to any suggestion any, any other. their conscience tells them they must not even listen to the uh, publicity or propaganda of any other religion therefore if you preach the gospel to them you are seducing them to act against their own conscience and therefore, we shouldn't preach the gospel to Muslims. All they can do is kind of, sort of, be out there, setting a kind of good example, and maybe, uh, hopefully, that they'll sort of somehow come around to. But,
0: but I mean, it's it's sort of a sophistry.
3: It's it's, 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 it's <laughs> a real, Pure radical um, subjectivism. The, you know, the, your subjective good conscience is is everything and the objective truth of the gospel takes a second sort of a back seat to that I don't, I don't know if it's published but in, in personal conversation um, perhaps better not put that round on the internet so maybe I shouldn't even be mentioning it here because it's not something he's published but I've uh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so too late now Sorry, don't, don't, don't spread it around on the, on the internet maybe think might be quite correct but I, um, this is certainly the uh,
0: you know, if he, if he hears this no, tape, he uh, I'm sure I'll get, well, I'm not sure, but he might send me some, some kind of correspondence or email, but I've caricatured his position. And, you know, i have happy to discuss that with him. But, but at the end of the day, if I've oversimplified, it remains the case that he wants to construct an ethical framework that doesn't require our non-believing intellectuals to accept uh, Christ or his church. Or
4: even, or even the divine command. So. But the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, just had a quick footnote. Uh, he seems to deny, or you say, that there is even a natural and metaphysical foundation for ethics. You know, because uh, he implies that teleology, for instance, I mean, part of your talk is that in ethics, uh, given the history of ethics, has to be grounded in the metaphysics of human nature. And Griset denies teleology. He said modern natural science has done away with that. And so his eight goods, or however many goods <laughs> you want to propound, are not grounded. There's no, there's no grounding in human nature and its end. So what is the good of man? Oh, you know, you you can't know he, he, he can't say that. He can't say because there is no good of man. There's no teleology. That's the
0: point I missed. He, he, his answer to that is, well, you have to read my argument from beginning to end. And read my argument from beginning to end. What you'll find is that you can't honestly disagree with my conclusions, because when you engage in the process of thinking about this, you'll come up with these eight goods. Now, that's yeah. an intuition. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's talking about a morality of intuition. He'll deny that. Yeah. He'll say, oh, no, this is practical reason, not intuition. It's pure intuitionism. Yeah. Well, Because he forgot marriage until after 1993. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, so listen, well, he substitutes for a
4: metaphysical view of nature, what he calls biologism. That that human nature is a, is a, uh, necessitated uh, by biology, and any necessitated system you can't build an ethics on. Well, that's true, but human nature isn't reducible to biologism. That is just a, a necessitated system, we, are we all organic ones? organic elements.
0: So we all agree that he's a bum.
4: Yeah. <laughs> to, put, uh, to put, uh, not to put too fine a point, but one last footnote, you know, on this uh, rights talk uh, that you, you mentioned, which is the modern obsession, uh, and that seems to be grounded, apropos of the conversation we had earlier in the week, in this modern fable of the state of nature, which is a theory of human nature. And the moderns build their whole political philosophy and ethical philosophy on this myth of the state of nature, which is to say that man's original natural condition is one of solitude, uh, completely contradicting the ancient and Christian tradition that man is by nature social and political. And if if you live in solitude, if that's your origin, that's your nature, you don't have any duties or obligations. You only have claims. Because you don't, because obligations involve a, a social context based on the social nature, and so when you get rid of the social political nature of man, uh, there's nothing left but rights. That they, they become primordial rather than than obligation. Where so you, this, uh, you know, again, your essential point that uh, a, a, prior to to conversion to Christ, we have to have a rational grounding of ethics in the true metaphysics of human nature. And if your starting point is man is a solitary being, everything, all modern uh, political and ethical thought flows from there. Just as for Plato and, and Aristotle, all political and ethical thought flowed from the idea that man was a political animal. And so that, that reversal by the moderns just
0: alters everything. Well, the state of nature was a convenient fiction because the, uh, liberalism is based on the idea, when it comes to political authority, <laughs> that we consent to be governed right so in order for the consent to arise we have to be in a condition where we yeah. were free where we're free and then we consent and autonomous yeah. so they invent this state of nature yeah where we're, we're all uh, living free out of the place yes. we all have the right to execute the law of nature against everyone else exactly we do everything we need to do to preserve ourselves but then as a pragmatic decision we just have to give that up and we we consent to political authority exactly. which is not, it's, it's completely contrary. it's theologically unsustainable basically. and every major political and ethical thinker from 1600
4: to 1800 including Kant who really is, is a variation on a the theme of himself, uh, grounded their position in the state of major consensual
0: approach or contractual approach and that the idea of political and social life this is, that, this is the libertarian uh, idea too that well, man is naturally free and yet Man's somehow he's always, been out, he's always been under government so how do they explain that well, Rothbard yeah. I mean, has this marvelous attempt to make, right? it's all a plot right? But since the beginning of recorded history elites have used clever intellectuals to persuade people to submit to political authority and this happens again and again in just about every society and they just can't explain it somehow people have been duped yeah. and, and when you ask them well show me a place where uh, men have not been under political exactly. authority they come up with medieval Iceland yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chris, I, I, just mm-hmm. one exceedingly
2: simple and maybe naive question, but your your um, your quotes from Scalia very are very unsettling. Um, I mean, actually, they blew me away because I guess I've been thinking of Scalia as one of the good guys. So my question is, um, and it's an honest question, not a rhetorical one, uh, but. Uh, if we heard those in, in, in context, is there any, any possibility that possibly that this was a tactical a, a, a tactical means of, of sort of going under the radar so that he's 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 not drawing attention to himself as a Catholic jurist? I mean, he, these are actual statements of the principle.
0: He said it again and again in, in different venues, including one venue where I heard him say it myself, where he said, judge, judging has nothing to do with the natural law," and, and this is a direct quote: "You write it, I'll enforce it." positivist. not only is he a positivist, positivist. yes yeah, he isn't a positivist who says look I want christendom but I have no choice he's a positivist who flaunts it he says you're an idiot if you say that within a democratic framework I can follow the natural law yeah he, I
4: mean he goes so far as to disparage it I, you know yeah. the same speeches I and mean, he mocks it
0: yeah he absolutely mocks natural law and I've heard him uh do that we're off the record. I have, I have a petition for Sir Schirari pending before him right now, so... <laughs> if, if what I've said already doesn't guarantee a denial, I'm on ahead.
1: Anyway. I actually heard the story of saying the same thing essentially in a Christy Fidelis comedian breakfast. Right. That's where I was. I was there. You were there. Yeah. Oh, I, I forgot you were there too then. And I had a big argument, argument afterwards yeah. with Austin Ruse about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, who <I> had on that one? Yeah, that's... not going to <laughs> but the problem that I have <laughs> is that Scalia and Roberts and these these other good Catholics, Catholics that are on the Supreme Court bench, from a practical point of view, what do we do? I mean, they're the best we've got on the Supreme Court. Um, oh, well, again, okay. I don't
2: know how to handle that.
1: What, what do you want Scalia to do, or what are we
0: supposed to do, vis-a-vis Scalia? I'll take the abortion question. What could Scalia do? He could say uh, what the Constitution Party says in its, in its platform, that uh, the constitutional protection against deprivation of life without due process of law, applied to the states through the protection clause, covers the unborn. He could say that. But as I in that in the quote I gave, he says, well, I don't agree with that say that tomorrow. He could even say in a dissenting opinion, it certainly would be a dissenting opinion, uh, as a jurist who comes from the uh, Catholic tradition, I recognize that the natural law obtains always and everywhere. And uh, under the Constitution, as rightly interpreted according to the natural law, the child in the womb cannot be killed, which is what the Constitution Party says. And they're running for office. So why, is, why cannot he, as a sitting uh, Supreme Court Justice, take the position of the Constitution Party? What has he got to lose? He's got life tenure. What does he say about Thank the Dred Scott
3: case with slavery? You,
0: now, he, he he would have to... The Dred Scott case, you might not know this, the Constitution has an interstate slave rendition clause. It was negotiated in the Philadelphia Convention. And the Southern slave owners wanted an absolute assurance that if any of their slaves escaped to another state, they'd be returned that's in the, the, the unamended text of the Constitution. And when, uh, when Dred Scott escaped and got above the, the, the Missouri Compromise Line and claimed that he was free uh, and was returned to his master, Justice Taney said, I'm sorry, but uh, when, you, when you were returned to your master uh, under the Constitution, there is property. I must enforce the interstate rendition clause. And Abraham Lincoln, when he took office, said, I must enforce the Compromise of 1850. I must enforce the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. Because that's federal implementing legislation uh, which implements the Interstate Rendition Clause. You know what Lincoln said? He said, I am personally opposed to slavery. <laughs> but until the Constitution is amended, I must uphold the law. He's pro-choice well, law. Have he was pro choice and to Well, you would have to say that. To, they to. were absolutely right. He would have to. And you know, if you go to the Westlaw online database, it's a legal research database. If a case has been overruled, it's got a red flag next to it. No longer good law. Go to Dred Scott. It's got a yellow flag. It's still good law, except, <laughs> if, uh, except that it was overruled by the 13th Amendment. But on its facts, it's good law, because the Constitution, as written, the unamended text at that time, was correctly applied to Justice Taney. At that time, yeah. And yeah. Scalia it's, it's, would have to decide Dred Scott the way Taney decided it. He'd have no choice. Is there
4: anywhere in constitutional law where a person is defined? No. That's the other thing. Then, you know, how are they how are they adjudicating? I mean, you got to have a definition. He
0: could have defined it as a person in yeah. Europe. Yeah.
4: But where does he get the idea that a person is just a type that walks around? It's his opinion. <laughs> <And> he's, <laughs> so he's basing his whole constitutional yeah. opinion on some superficial, even childish yeah. uh, view
0: uh, of the metaphysics of a person. Listen, all the quotes I read you. Uh, on well, nothing compared to the small phrase he used during that telecast, the abortion thing. Yeah.
5: Michael. Uh,
0: yeah, uh,
1: yeah, I think you said that uh, we've got this, you know, some Catholic scholars have this effort to uh, like find common ground with uh, people who are secularists, and uh, that should be abandoned. And I, and I agree that those particular efforts should be abandoned, and that uh, rights should be abandoned, and I agree with that. And then you say, well, once we've done that, uh, we should motivate our uh, fellow Catholics to exert their political power. And that'll uh, you know, give, bring about a new Christendom. In now, yeah, I think there's something major missing there because even though uh, Finnis' natural rights project, you know, may not uh, be something that'll work. Uh, nonetheless, you have a situation in which for hundreds of years, like all the leading thinkers and experts and authorities on thought, have said liberalism is good. And so we have a situation which like all the people who spend a lot of time thinking about this in our uh, authoritative positions uh, think that way. And if you try to do things radically at odds with that, based on pure political force on voting power, it seems to me you're gonna have major problems. Because you know, it's very difficult to govern a society in a free and uh, orderly and reasonably consensual and nonviolent way. Uh, if uh, the people think about things, reject the direction that some major power is going. So uh, it seems to me before we uh, go too far with the political power, there has to be a lot of conversion and cultural Uh, uh, that that go on uh, so that uh, uh, the Catholic uh, view of natural law, or at least something that includes major parts of it, you don't have to have somebody agree on everything to to agree with you on major parts of it, uh, have a lot more presence. Well, the, ba- the basic the basic ingredient of Catholic social order is
0: Catholics. So we need more of them. Why? Wow, you know, you, you could, um, you, you Leo talks about this in Libertas, about using the cankered modern liberties, as he calls them, uh, against the reigning order, making use of democracy to overturn the errors of democracy. And maybe, maybe it could be done at the national level in some radical way. But Catholics could tip the balance in a state election. Maybe you'll we'll have one state that bans all abortions. Yeah. and then maybe you'll get another Scalia who at least will say, "Well, the Constitution doesn't mandate abortion, so that state law will all be left intact." Yeah. Or maybe, maybe if things get bad enough, you'll have a town that secedes. It says, "Our our our local municipal code is based on the Ten Commandments." And we know abortion in this town. We know pornography in this town. Come and get us. And maybe they won't come. To you. And here we can take, 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 a, take some advice from the libertarians. Hans-Hermann Holpe, in his book, Democracy of the God, talks about a secession strategy. I've had an email exchange with him on it. And maybe in the not-too-distant future, when things really begin breaking down, certain communities might get away with a political secession without having to fire a shot. There's a precedent for that in Australia in the form of the Hutt River
3: Principality. Yes. <laughs> H- H- H-U-T-T. If you look at, in the Wikipedia, if anything, look up Hutt, H-U-T-T, River Principality. It, for 30 years, there's been a uh, independent state, quote-unquote, of 29 square miles within the state of Western Australia, which uses its own postage stamps, awards its own uh, decorations, has its own constitution, uh, has the sovereign in the form of... Prince Leonard, as he calls himself, and you know, his wife, the princess, and the royal family. And they get away with it. The state government tolerates them because they still pay their taxes and obey the other laws of Australian society. But uh, it started off as a secession. The, the guy figured that he was having a quarrel with the state government about the titles of his land. And he figured the best way he could make sure he could uh, keep his, his ranch was to secede
0: from the... The Commonwealth of Australia. Oh, I say you should try that in the United States. Let me—I'll table a motion, resolve that we—we yeah. we create the Council of Gardone.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
0: the, and that our philosopher king will be John Rao. <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> you he will rule together with Queen Anne. <laughs> there actually
1: is a Vermont. There is a—they've declared themselves uh, a separate, uh, separate state again. I think the Second Vermont Republic. But you know, if we're going to if we're going to have um, the Vespers, uh, we are we are going to type up that last Yeah, yeah. We better get over there because Maria will lock us out if uh, if uh,
5: you know.